listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Before I uh, do the reading, I've just got to throw some love out to Martha. I watched uh, online last week, and when she did the reading last week, my first impression was, wow, great job, Martha. My second impression was, holy cow, what have I got in store for me next week? But I got off lucky. There's a couple in here, but I think I'll do my best, so way to go, Martha. Um, A reading from Romans, chapter 16. 17 to 27, and I do feel a little like the runner at the end of the race that's kind of pushing my chest through the the line. It's the last part, as I'm sure Dan will expound upon momentarily. A reading from Romans. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed, and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for that reading, Kurt. And yeah, you did not have it as bad as Martha did last week, that's for sure. <clears throat> well, friends, this is it. Uh, today is a big day, and I'm glad that someone else other than me knows why. <laughs> you know why. A lot of you know why. You guys watching at home know why. After seven months, 30 teachings, a little over 13 hours of preaching, we are finally finishing the book of Romans. That's good. Yeah, you can clap for that. <laughs> We made it, though. We made it. This this is an achievement. Um, We have never done a series like this, at least not in the time that I've been here. Um, This is the first time that we have, like, just chosen a book of the Bible and just, like, dived in, taken our time to go piece by piece, verse by verse, to really uh, unpack and get all that we can out of this text. It was fun. I had fun. Hopefully you all had fun as well. Um, We started this series back when we were worshiping together quarantine when like COVID first hit. Um, We're finishing it while we are still in the midst of uh, the pandemic, which I don't think we would have believed if you had told us that back in March. 
Um, but you all did great. I know a number of folks who have been reading the book of Romans along with us as we work together, uh, work through it together here in worship, which is awesome. Anytime we have Christians reading the Bible and actually understanding it, that's a win uh, in my book. Now, with all those pleasantries out of the way, here's the problem with today's sermon. I plan these teachings like months in advance. I, I have to, to stay sane. Like, I have to have a roadmap to tackle something this big. Um, if you would have asked me a year ago what would, be, what would be talking about today, I wouldn't have been able to give you chapter and verse, but I would have known that we would be finishing the book of Romans vaguely. We'd be toward the end of it. That's just how I operate. I'm a planner. Spontaneity is not one of my strong suits. Um, I actually chalked that up to my Baptist upbringing, by the way. Um, as Baptists, we're known as a people of the book, right? The, the Bible is very important to us. We're not so much known as a people of the Spirit, though, right? Some people are nodding. Yeah, Baptists don't really know what to make of the Holy Spirit. It kind of freaks us out, if we're, if we're honest. It's a little too spontaneous, a little too free. We like our faith predictable and orderly, well-structured. And for a while now, I, I have known exactly what we were going to do in this sermon. I had a plan. We were going to talk about these names again, all these random names that pop up here at the end, um, Tertius and Timothy and Sosipater. I love to focus on these parts of the Bible that we normally just skip over. So we were going to talk about the names that Paul mentions. We were going to talk about the process of writing the book of Romans. This was actually going to be more of like an apologetic sermon, believe it or not. Sort of a, a, an affirming note to end on. We're going to talk about what kind of literature this letter is. How did we get this letter? How can we trust the authenticity of this letter? The fact that like we can know with relative certainty that Paul really did write this letter about 25 years after the time of Jesus, which is huge. That was the plan. But then that pesky Holy Spirit had to get in the mix. And I sat down in my office on Monday to start working on this sermon, and I read these lines. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless, innocent in what is evil. See, here's my dilemma. <clears throat> As a pastor living in the 21st century, doing ministry, working with people in the 21st century, there is very little incentive to preach difficult sermons. Like none. To deliver a message that like some people aren't going to like. There is no incentive for that. I gain nothing by preaching hard sermons. Because we're not the only church in town, right? I mean, there are a lot of other options. If I preach a sermon people don't like, they might leave. They might go somewhere else, some other church. There are like five other churches in a one-block radius. They're all great, by the way. But there's options. That's the point. So it's really tempting as a pastor to just ignore all of this. 
to just skip it and preach a nice, easy, feel-good sermon about how we can trust the book of Romans. But if I did that and just ignored all of this, that would be ministerial malpractice. I owe you more than that. Because the truth is, there are many in our world today who are seeking to sow division. There's a lot of messaging out there that stands in direct opposition to the teaching you have received, the message of Scripture, the Gospel of Paul, the message of this book of Romans that we've been working through for seven months. There are a lot of folks out there, even a lot of like Christian leaders, who are not so much interested in serving Christ as they are in serving their own appetites. And I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent of evil. So we've got to talk about this. We've got to talk about division. And this is tough. It is hard to talk about division without being divisive. But we have to do it because the division in our world today is killing us. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with in like the last year whose lives have been upended by the division that's plaguing our society. Spouses who are no longer speaking to each other, um, parents who are fighting with their adult children, friends who've been cut off, unfriended, blocked on Facebook. It's killing us. I have friends, I have family members who are talking about civil war as if it's a good thing. It's Aaron. Sorry, it's not. It's not Aaron. It's not my, wife. my wife is not rooting for a civil war. Thank goodness. But I know way too many people who are. People who are ready. Many are armed. And they're talking like they're ready to take up arms against their neighbors, against their own family members, if it comes to that. We're not in a good place right now. Our country, our society is not in a good place. This is not healthy. It's not normal. And it's impacting the church. I know there are some folks here who'd prefer I don't talk about this. You'd rather I just stay out of politics. But we've got to get political when the text gets political. Because this is our book. And it is way too easy to just spiritualize this all away. A lot of times in the church when we talk about division, we talk about things that just don't matter, ultimately. Arguments over worship style, seriously. Um, little fights and debates between denominations. Uh, personal arguments. Things that we're not even going to remember in ten years. That's not the division that was facing the Christians in Rome. The church in Rome at the time of Paul wasn't arguing over worship styles or the color of the carpet in the sanctuary. They were fighting over things like ethnicity and politics. The biggest division was between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. That's an ethnic division. To be a Roman citizen at the time of Paul meant that you hated Jews and vice versa. They weren't arguing over harmless spiritual stuff. They were arguing over whether or not their fellow Christians had a right to live. If 
ethnicity, politics, identity, war, the same stuff that we're still fighting over today. So we're going to follow Paul's lead, and we are going to close this series by talking about division. And I want to talk about three major sources that I really think are driving division in our society today. Partisan media, social media, and Christian nationalism. Light, airy, easy stuff, right? (laughs) This easy stuff. Um, Notice, though, I don't have any specific leaders up here, specific politicians, specific political parties. They're guilty, too. Our elected leaders have blood on their hands in this, but that's a symptom. That's not the cause. This is getting much closer to the root of the problem. So let's talk about partisan media. Let's start there. Partisan news. News that looks more like propaganda than actual reporting. If you get the bulk of your news from cable television, this is what you're getting. This is what the talking heads serve up every night on prime time on channels like Fox News and MSNBC. It's partisan news. Outlets like these and like similar themed ones are driven by bad will actors who profit from division. People who generate ad revenue by being as extreme as possible, as offensive as possible, by riling up their base to make money. And this kind of stuff might seem harmless, it's just entertainment, right? Like why does the pastor care where I get my news? But this is a discipleship issue. We're talking about discipleship. When you get your information, your news about the world from a single source, and you imbibe that same source day after day after day, you are being discipled. And I'm sorry to say this, but like one hour in here on Sunday morning cannot compete with five-plus hours of Rachel Maddow or Tucker Carlson. It just can't. We're not that flashy. We can't keep up. I don't have graphics. Not good ones, anyway. You might be someone who reads your Bible every day. Maybe you do your morning quiet time, 15 minutes, 30 minutes in the Word, which is amazing. That's good. But if you follow that up by mainlining partisan poison for the rest of the day, You are not going to have a Christian worldview. You're just not. Because you're being discipled by another source. And no servant can have two masters. I actually speak from experience on this. Um, When I was in college, I got sucked into this garbage. For about two years, um, I was really into right-wing libertarian politics. I was a proud libertarian for a chunk. Um, I listen to talk radio. I listen to a lot of, um, like, political podcasts. I even read some Ayn Rand, which, like, there's, what, three people in here who get that reference? Let's just say we all do questionable things in college. And that changed for me when I went to seminary. Seminary is basically like grad school for pastors. It's where, like, you learn how to pastor. And one thing seminary does really well, like way better than most churches, is it shakes up your worldview and it forces you to identify your idols. It forces you to start reading the Bible really, really well. To realize that the Bible isn't neutral on this stuff. 
The Bible isn't just a bunch of personalized spirituality. It actually has something to say for society. How we structure society, how we run an economy, how we treat the poor, the immigrant, and the refugee, the need to value all life. Not just in a womb, and when you get out, you're on your own, but all life, especially those at the margins. As soon as I started reading the Bible deeply, my politics had to change. I couldn't listen to the same stuff on the radio. I couldn't watch the same garbage on TV. If your primary source of news information is cable TV, turn it off. Find something new. Maybe subscribe to a local paper or watch the local news. Uh, Find some nonpartisan news sources, or even better, some solid Christian news sources. There's stuff like our denominations magazine, The Christian Citizen, which is fantastic. Baptist News Global, in spite of the word Baptist, is fantastic. There's good stuff out there that helps combat some of this partisan poison. And if you don't think this has that effect on you, if you think you're kind of above this, ask yourself one question. What political positions have you had to change recently because of the gospel? How has your view on politics, economics, the poor, how has any of that had to change because of something you read in scripture? If you can't answer that question, you might have an idol. Because you're being discipled by something. Something is shaping you. This stuff is coming from somewhere. And no servant can serve two masters. So that's partisan media. We having fun yet? Let's turn it down or maybe turn it up. I'm not sure. And talk about social media. Second, the other half of the media... um, I don't know, empire. Whenever I talk to people whose lives have been impacted by all this division that's plaguing our society, folks who've like had relationships end over this stuff, they always say the same thing. It's like a mantra. It never used to be this way. Things have changed. Something's different. My friend, my family member, they never used to be this extreme. Something happened. And they're right. Something did happen. This happened. Facebook went uh, available to the general public in 2006, less than 15 years ago. This is very new technology. And it changed everything. We're on Facebook. The church is on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. It is a fantastic tool. There are folks watching the service right now on Facebook. Hi, by the way. We're glad you're here. Social media is a wonderful tool. It's helped us expand the reach of our ministries. It connects people across great distances. It's given oppressed people the ability to capture their experience and broadcast it for the world to see. But it's also used by dictators. In places like India and Burma, social media has been used to spread propaganda, to fuel racism and misinformation, even to organize lynching mobs. This sort of stuff is starting to happen here, and we're not ready for it. 
If you have Netflix, I would recommend checking out the documentary called The Social Dilemma. Um, anyone watch this by curiosity? Any hands? A couple. Okay. It's a really important documentary to watch. It delves into how social media works and how it is changing our society, how it is changing us. When you scroll through your Facebook feed or Instagram or whatever app you're on, everything you do is being watched and recorded to generate profit. Um, when you search for something, how long you linger on a certain image, the links you click, the sort of content that stops you from scrolling, all of that is cataloged and filed away and added to the algorithm to capture more of your attention and generate more money for Facebook's advertisers. Social media has basically put us all in this massive experiment. And what multiple studies have now found is that the kind of content that really captures our attention is the stuff that scares us, the stuff that alarms us, makes us angry, and confirms our biases, no matter if it's correct or not. That's the kind of stuff that makes us come back for another hit, just like a drug, over and over again. If you're someone who believes, for example, that like Democrats are socialists and destroying the country, or that Black Lives Matter protesters are terrorists, you're gonna have that reinforced every time you go to your feed. And if you're someone who believes that Republicans are racist and destroying the country and that police are monsters or whatever, you're gonna have that reinforced every time you scroll through your feed, either direction you come. You're going to see stories, memes, conspiracy theories, articles, posts from your friends that affirm your worst instincts, pushing you further and further to the extreme. Something has changed. We really are more deeply divided than we were 10 years ago, and it's not healthy. So here's what I encourage you to do. Um, if you're on social media, take a little audit of your time. A lot of phones now have these apps that will tell you how much time you spend on social media. I got buzzed about a half hour before the service. My social media time was up 11% last week. But look at that number and do everything you can to drive it down. Try taking a Sabbath from technology one day a week. Or when you come home before dinner, Plug your phone into charge and don't touch it again until the next morning. Take steps to make your phone less stimulating. Turn off alerts, silence the phone, change your screen to black and white, anything to reduce that dopamine hit when you reach for your phone. Personally, I'm a big fan of breakfast. It's my favorite meal of the day. I cook breakfast most days for Aaron and the kids. And that time when I'm making my breakfast, or making breakfast for everyone, that's usually my time. That's when I listen to podcasts, scroll through social media, check emails. But lately I've noticed that I have been shooing the kids away while I'm doing that stuff. If they like come and try to talk to me, try to get my attention while I'm making breakfast, I get angry. Send them to the other room. Tell them to leave me alone for a few minutes. Stop distracting me from my precious technology. So the other day I was making eggs and Miriam came in to talk to me and I did something radical. I put my phone down. I picked her up, I put her on the counter and we had a fascinating conversation about unicorns while I made eggs. It was great. It was amazing. It's 
like, this is what life was like 10 years ago, I guess. Beware of those who cause dissension. Beware of those forces that are distracting you from what really matters. Beware the social media algorithms that are turning you against your friends and family. Avoid them, for they do not serve our Lord Christ. They're making you less like Jesus, not more. So put the phone away. Unless you're reading your Bible on it right now, that's fine. That's social media, though. Okay, that's social media. We covered two. Let's talk about Christian nationalism. There's a sentence I don't say every day. Let's talk about Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, like in a sentence, is the merging of Christian identity with national identity, often ethnic identity. We often talk about white Christian nationalism. You hear that a lot. Christian nationalist views are popping up in more and more surveys across the U.S. and Europe. This stuff is getting popular again. Um, And Christian nationalism comes in many forms. We all know this version, right? Like, we're aware of this. The KKK, neo-Nazis, those folks down in Charlottesville with the torches chanting, Jews will not replace us, right? We know this form. It's easy to spot. We know to avoid this stuff. At least I think we know to avoid this stuff. But Christian nationalism comes in many forms, much more subtle forms, forms that are way harder to spot. When our Christian identity is conflated with our American identity. When they become one and the same, so there's no separation. When the Bible is draped with a flag. When being a Christian is less about following Jesus than it is about being a good American. Who you vote for, whose yard sign is in your lawn, whether you stand or kneel for the flag, that kind of stuff. The minute the gospel stops challenging us, the minute the gospel stops upending our lives, turning our world upside down, and identifying our idols, when it's just confirming everything we already believe, that's Christian nationalism, and it is a poison. As Christians, we need to do a deep inventory, all of us, about why we are in this thing. Why are we Christians? What is our faith really about? Are we Christians because we're compelled to follow Jesus? That dark-skinned Middle Eastern man who was killed by an unjust legal system? That guy who offends us all the time by calling out our sins, overturning our idols, telling us to love our enemies? Is that what this is about? Is this what brings us to church? Or are we here out of habit? Are we Christians because that's how we grew up? It's how we were raised. That's what you do. That's how you know who's on your team. It's how you know who's in and who's out, who's a good American. Beware of those who cause divisions. I'm going to end this sermon with two images, two maps 
Don't show me yet, Alicia. I'll tell you one. In a minute, I'm going to show you two maps that I think really illustrate what is the deepest divide in the church today, at least in America. And it's been dividing the American church since there's been an America. It's the divide between black Christians and white Christians. The church in Rome had their Jew and Gentile. That was the big ethnic split in the church in Paul's day. We've got black Christians and white Christians. That's our split. That's our divide. Dr. King famously said that 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour of the week. That's actually truer today than it was in the 1960s. And for two weeks now, all over the news, we've been seeing these maps. Don't show them yet. Red maps, blue maps, red states, blue states, to show you where you stand, where you fall, who's on your team, right? For just a second, forget red and blue. Let's talk about black and white. And I want to do that by looking at two maps that should be way more relevant to the church. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you these maps, and I'm not even going to tell you what year they're from. They're from a recent election, not this year, but it doesn't matter because it's always the same story for years now. This is the first map. This is what the electoral map would look like if only white Christians voted, white Protestants to be more specific. And this is the second map. This is what the electoral map would look like if only black Christians voted. That's a division. It's a division cutting right through the heart of the American church. Before you talk about civil war or who's destroying this country, realize that you are talking about your fellow Christians, whether you're red or blue. Now, if I was in a predominantly black church right now, if I was in, like, Ebenezer Baptist, our sister church downtown, this would be a very different sermon, for one. Um, I would have a very different set of questions. But we're in Brockport, the whitest village on the Erie Canal. Is that our motto? No. I thought that was our motto. No. We're in Brockport, and this is a predominantly white church. So here's what I think we need to be asking ourselves with this. It's not about political parties. Not for us. I don't care who you voted for two weeks ago. I really don't. I don't care which old white guy was your favorite. That is the wrong question to be asking. This isn't the time to get defensive. Talk about who's right, who's wrong, the talking points, to point to your one black friend who votes like you do. No. White Christians need to start asking themselves, ourselves, I'm in this too. What did they see that we don't? What is it that's dividing us from our brothers and sisters in the black church? Because it's not doctrine. What elements of their experience have we become blind to? How do we benefit from their exploitation? What are they seeing that we don't? Because we are divided. Make no mistake. 
It's measurable. It's quantifiable. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. If we don't heed Paul's warning in the closing words of this letter, we won't stand. If the American church doesn't figure this out, if we don't figure out how to guard ourselves from the forces in our world that are causing division, this house will not stand. Let's pray. Guard our hearts, Lord. Help us to be a people who aren't afraid to have tough conversations. Help me to be a pastor who's not afraid to have tough conversations. Give us the courage to address the elephant in the room, the forces that are sowing division in your church, in our households, in our neighborhoods, promoting violence, damaging our relationships, leading us to despise our fellow Christians. God, make us wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Help us to identify our idols and root them out. Help us to follow your Son more faithfully. Turn our world upside down, Lord. Challenge us. Confront us. Make us new. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.